my totally radical view going into uh, my PhD program was that sport is impacted by the natural environment, which seems super obvious, um, and it is. I'm Sean Heath. Welcome to Transforming Sport. The other half of this equation is that sport impacts the natural environment. Um, again, super radical, <laughs> um, but also very obvious. And uh, the additional step that I add onto this, and, and not everybody does, is you know if you have an impact on the natural environment, there's a, a certain degree of responsibility um, for that impact. Madeline Orr is an associate professor in sport management at State University of New York College at Cortland and is founder and co-director of the Sport Ecology Group. In January 2021, Madeline Orr delivered an online talk for the Sport and Leisure Cultures Research Group's 2021 seminar series. In her lecture, and in a later conversation I had with her, she explores the bi-directional relationship between the environment and climate change, and why sport can be a vehicle for change to the growing and continual climate crisis. One thing I guess I would like just to start off asking is maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own sporting background and sort of what got you interested in, in sport in the first place. Yeah, I love that question because I think people expect like, oh, I've been into sport my whole life. Gosh. And uh, that's just not me. I mean, I <laughs> I like it, right? As much as the next person. And I played sports as a kid, of course. And I think that that, you know, where I grew up was very common um, in, in the part of Toronto where I was in the community I grew up in. There were so many youth programs. The city of Toronto did a great job of making that really accessible. And so um, every kid I was going to school with was in swimming lessons or soccer or something. And so it was very, it was very much everywhere from a very young age. And I was interested in that in the same way that like an atheist might be interested in religion, um, where like I thought watching it on TV was kind of silly and I didn't understand why we had to just watch people run around and play sports and why we couldn't go outside and do it ourselves. Um, I've since learned uh, the joys of fandom, but um, really only like specifically with a couple of things, right? I like basketball, but only at the highest levels. I really like watching women's sport because I just think it's so interesting to like watch women's bodies do cool things um, in ways that like we don't always see. Uh, and I really think like college athletes or something else, like just the amount of energy and effort that goes into balancing being a student and being an athlete is just absolutely mind blowing to me. Um, so yeah, so I played sports all the way through. I actually played water polo up to university all the way through undergrad, um, for the university of Ottawa was an athlete in skiing as well. Um, have had some pretty interesting sports injuries that pulled me out. Ultimately, I broke my neck, uh, tore my ACL, had some, some big ones and, had to kind of rethink what I was going to do. And I came around to being a sport academic from a background in international development, actually, um, which explains, I think, a lot of my views. I think that makes more sense to people when they hear me say that. But uh, I came around to it just thinking, look, I can't do international development in the traditional sense. It's too doom and gloom for me. But having a frame to look at it um, and to explore some of these kind of grand challenges, so your climate change, your gender inequality, um, your racial disparities and, and systematic injustices. Exploring those through the lens of sport for me was taking the fun thing and using it as a weapon against the evil things. And that was a little more palatable. Um, so I got into it and I got stuck in. I really got inspired to do research in this area while at University of Brighton as a master's student. Um, 
And I was just encouraged by my professors to keep going. And so got the PhD and then haven't stopped. Um, and my research has evolved over time, but really it's still about using the fun thing to tackle the hard thing. Thank you for your patience. My name is Maddie Orr. I am the founder of the Sport Ecology Group, which I'll talk about in a second. I'm also a postdoc at uh, University of British Columbia based at the Okanagan campus, but with ties to the main campus in Vancouver um, as a sustainability fellow. And I am also an assistant professor of sport management at SUNY Cortland. So I wear many hats at the moment. Um, and I'm gonna just go through what you can expect real quick. Um, you talk about how I got to sport ecology. I had a bit of a roundabout route to get to this area of, of sport management. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is and uh, about our group that's been working on it. And then into my research specifically on climate risk and adaptation. So I started uh, in international development at the University of Ottawa for my undergrad, which was a lot of doom and gloom. Um, and it was a little too much for me in the sense that it was a lot of here's how things used to work and this is how they should continue to work. Um, you know, here's white, uh, white industrialist and, and colonialist countries, um, how they developed and every country can develop in the same way. And uh, I found that very frustrating as a narrative. Um, but it was great in the sense that I learned a lot about what sustainability actually means. Um, the institutions that developed and are trying to carry out uh, the sustainable development goals, which were preceded by the Millennium Development Goals. And again, I'll get into what all those are later. Um, carrying capacity is a really big one. And from an environmental standpoint, probably the most important. And because I didn't like uh, how doom and gloom the whole program was, um, when I was looking at grad school, I thought, well, the best part of all of the work I did in undergrad was looking at how these big events come together. And at first I was thinking about big UN meetings. Um, and then I got distracted by shiny sports and uh, kind of switched while I was in Brighton, my focus over to sports and got interested in that. You mentioned that you came at this from an international development perspective in sport and the the program at, at University of Brighton is a sport management um, master's degree. Why why sport management and and why stick with it, I guess? Yeah, it's funny. I actually like didn't even realize I was going to be in sport. I went into international uh, event management when it was still in the same program and it was all the same classes more or less. So it, like it was very interchangeable, except for like your project management class was a little different depending on what you're doing. Um, but I accidentally fell in love with actually studying sports specifically. And so I went in thinking like, oh, I'm going to, you know, study the G20 and the UN conferences and the COP and, you know, Paris 2015 and so on and so forth. Um, and then totally like took a hard left turn when I took um, <laughs> Tom Carter's contemporary issues in sport class. And, and like I said, fell in love with it and haven't turned back. So um, I didn't plan to be a sport management person. I just kind of became one <laughs> by accident. <laughs> Um, after my master's, which really is where I got interested in research, um, I did my thesis on negative legacies coming out of the Toronto Pan Am Games. I was curious about why we ignore um, the things that go wrong at events, right? So, you know, the narrative out of London was that it was great. Uh, meanwhile, there were some homeless populations that were displaced for that. You know, why don't we talk about that? Why doesn't that make it into the final narrative? Um, so I was curious about that. And then 
in my gap year, uh, ahead of starting my PhD, I spent some time working in France and then working for the Rio Olympics down in Brazil for Team Canada and Team USA. Um, and I saw both sides of the environmental problem in sport, which I'll get into here. So I got to France uh, in November of 2015, and I was there for um, a few months, well, the, I guess the winter season. And we had a really interesting winter in the sense that it was the deadliest, uh, most injurious and worst uh, from a tourism standpoint um, in many, many, many years. And so this picture on the bottom right is what it looked like at the top of the mountain when we arrived. Um, and it looked like this really through September, uh, sorry, January, which is very odd. Um, anyone who's been in a ski resort or if you close your eyes and picture a ski resort in the Alps, it's not what you imagine. And the problem with this is uh, like the basic science behind it is when you get all the snow at once, it has nothing to grab on the ground um, because the ground is frozen and there's nothing kind of to build on. So when you get a big dump of snow in January, what happens is it's very um, likely to turn into avalanches. It's very easy to fall. And so it, we lost uh, a number of people at our resort um, on the French-Italian border that year. There was an avalanche up the road at Les Alpes that killed some kids um, who were there as part of a school group. In the US, they had the same problem. It was a delayed winter and they had the deadliest winter they've had. And so it was a number of different problems. So I, I saw it first from the death standpoint, which is a scary way to see it. Uh, and then I started looking around and noticing it's not just a health problem, it's an economic problem. All of a sudden, you know, restaurants were starting to say, okay, well, if no tourists are here because there's no snow, we're gonna close our doors and we're gonna only open on the weekend. Or, you know, we're gonna let go of all our staff uh, and we're gonna open again when the snow comes back. So um, that really also reduced morale and mental health was suffering in the, in the region. And there was um, some interesting work actually done with nurses who treat people who work uh, at the mountains. So they work in kind of the mountain clinics and they were saying mental health was through the roof. So really interesting to see what it looks like when snow doesn't come to a place that it's supposed to be. And then six months later, um, I was in Rio and uh, an economic catastrophe really um, is what that amounted to. So being on the ground and seeing how much land was cleared, for example, for the golf course um, and then for the golf course to go unused. So it was used for about three weeks for the event. So the pre-event and then the actual competition um, and then was just left and they cleared a whole bunch of forest for that uh, in the torch relay ahead of the games, um, a Jaguar that was there basically to be a mascot ended up getting a little rambunctious and they shot it. Um, so that really riled up the environmental community. And then essentially, if you look at the pictures of Rio, um, the all the promises that were made on an environmental basis essentially were not fulfilled. And not only is that bad because the event had promised all sorts of things they didn't deliver on, uh, it was bad because the event itself has a massive impact, right? So when you have tens of thousands of people coming to one place, um, whether it be air travel or whether it be, uh, you know, even ground travel for that matter, it, it has an impact. And so if you're not as an organization working overtime to offset that, it doesn't look good. And, and the community really noticed. So what they didn't show on TV was that every day during the Rio Olympics, there were protests happening up and down Copacabana Beach, just north of where the marathon site was. Um, so it was really interesting to see that play out. And so my totally radical view going into uh, 
my PhD program was that sport is impacted by the natural environment, which seems super obvious, um, and it is. And this is not just from, you know, skiing is an obvious one. It's a bit of a uh, canary in the coal mine, so to speak. But, you know, we're starting to see this with summer sports. Um, so, you know, we all remember the Australian Open uh, engulfed essentially in, in flames last year. Um, what people don't know is that while the Australian Open were contending with poor air quality and orange skies, there were 12 community sport clubs um, for tennis, tennis alone, and this isn't counting the cricket clubs or the soccer clubs, um, in the Melbourne region that essentially burned to the ground uh, in that same week because of the fires. And each one had a membership of over 200 people, mostly children. And so that's 12 times 200 children who don't have the opportunity to play their sport for the foreseeable future while they rebuild. So is, is you speak about um, a lot of the impacts that, you know, these wildfires in California, the wildfires down in um, Australia, uh, the pollution in Beijing, um, all of these, yeah. you know, uh, flooding, typhoons, hurricanes, all of these impact different sports organizations and, you know, for the Olympics and stuff, you can maybe import in snow. And we've seen this multiple times or, right. you know, make it <laughs> fake snow yeah. uh, at, at the winter Olympics. But we hear less about yeah. these small grassroots organizations and community groups, right? Which you, which you just sort of mentioned. Um, they're really small actors, like you, you say, but what are maybe yeah. some of the ways that they can help make this change uh, and put the pressure that these individual actors can have on, on these larger systems? Um, I love this question so much. So, so I don't, I'll start with this. I don't have all the answers. Um, what I do have is kind of three tasks or, or overall kind of directions to think about if you're working or involved with one of these kind of smaller uh, tennis club, golf course, um, school team kind of player, right? So the first one is uh, talk about it. Talk about it. It's kind of like, you know, there's a reason that we didn't have um, proper anti-harassment policies in sports for so long is because no one wanted to talk about it. And as long as we don't want to talk about climate change being a problem, as long as we don't want to talk about gender inequality being a problem, uh, it will continue to be. So, so that's number one, right? Have a conversation. And, you know, that can look like um, the offhanded comment at the end of practice, like, hey, can everyone just take a walk around the pitch uh, and just let's make sure it's really clean um, because that's our responsibility here. Or it can be, you know, hey, can we just think for five minutes about who lives close to each other and, and maybe we can do some carpooling here. Um, so engaging in that way. And then in addition to that, I think that there's... Um, in most cities around the world now, and obviously this is not universal, but uh, it's growing, there are pressures um, for the cities to develop a climate adaptation plan of some sort. And so that's really encouraging because these small players can absolutely be part of that. So if you can identify that your site might be at risk um, of flooding, for example, or that your programming may be impacted because of heat or what have you, uh, you may be eligible to participate in some of those conversations about what the city can do to support you. And then simultaneously, your site can become an active site in that resistance. And so um, I've seen, for example, like soccer fields that get used as um 
like they get designated as protected sites in the city as part of the climate action plan because a field can absorb way more water in the case of a flood than right. you know a parking lot. So, um, so all of a sudden, like your site is protected and therefore eligible for additional funding potentially if something goes wrong. Like so, you, you know, you tap into these systems and that goes a long way. So find out what your town's doing, find out what your city's doing, and all. And there are some exceptions to this, and there are some cities that are so far behind. Um, but in most cases, there's uh, there's momentum building. And so there is a local opportunity to get involved that way. And then the third way would be, you know, there's, um, a growing kind of civil society movement in the sports sector to pressure the United Nations, um, to include those smaller actors in their sport for climate action framework, which I think I talked about a bit in my talk. Um, but it's essentially like the sectoral effort at the UN level to address climate change in sport. And so right now it's written as five principles It was mm -hmm. put out in 2018. And um, essentially it's, you know, it can be summed up like this. Uh, we're going to reduce our footprint and we're going to increase our brain print, which is to say we're going to increase the amount um, of, of space we take up in people's minds and have them think about this more. So um, great goals, except that it's really hard for some of those small players to get involved in that or commit to that. So there's a growing civil society movement led by the Rapid, Rapid Transition Alliance in the UK to bring more people to the table and to just have the conversation. And so those conversations are going to start rolling out in mid-2021. And I would encourage you to Google that and um, get yourself signed up and you can turn your camera off if you want and just listen in the background. Um, but it's a great learning opportunity, a good conversation. And, and really, it's going to be very basic level how do we have an international conversation about this for the, the kind of the little guy players? You know, any given month, there's some conversation happening about this, just about finding it. And, uh, and if you're looking for those kinds of resources, I would strongly encourage rapid transition Alliance, um, sport positive summit is another one that happens in the UK. Uh, so there's a few, there's a few out there that are starting to pop up. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Maddie. Yeah. That's so, it's so encouraging to hear that, there are all of these different movements um, and organizations and work that even the little players can can do, which you know adds additional pressure on on those bigger players to to make that to make that shift um, that you're so advocating for and, and putting the pressure <laughs> from the top. Yeah, and I think it's like with like with anything, um, this is going to be probably a conversation that people like you and I are going to have for the whole rest of our careers. So don't expect everything to happen overnight. And <laughs> just, you know, like, I think we have to give each other a bit of grace. Um, it's going to be a learning curve. That's okay. You know, and, and not expecting kind of an overnight total divestment from all carbon and fossil fuels like that. That's irrealistic, but we can move towards something progressively better and just chase, chase that constant improvement as opposed to the perfection. Yeah. I like that. Very attainable, very realistic. Um, so these are the direct impacts and, and sometimes people like to trip me up here and say, well, you know, not all sports are impacted by the natural environment or not every organization or not every person. Uh, and I like to push back and say, well, you know, maybe not directly, but if you're, any organization working in the current environment, it will hit you at some point. And so whether it's um, your facility being damaged by a you know, torrential downpour or something similar, um, or if it's just, you know, people coming and going to your facility who may not be able to get there safely because of smog, because of air pollution, because of um, 
you know, floods or, or what have you, or it might be in your supply chain. Uh, and so that's, you know, as we know, a hopscotch around the world and across the continents. And when you get into the supply chain, it becomes very clear that sport will be impacted by changes in the natural environment moving forward. The other half of this equation is that sport impacts the natural environment. Um, again, super radical, um, but also very obvious. And uh, the additional step that I add onto this and, and not everybody does is, you know, if you have an impact on the natural environment, there's a, a certain degree of responsibility um, for that impact. And so in some cases, it's a legal responsibility. Uh, and so that might look like there's certain parts of um, North America now that you have to pay a carbon tax as an organization on the amount of emissions you produce. Um, so in some places, it's a legal responsibility to be responsible for that impact. In other cases, it's a moral responsibility um, or just being a good corporate citizen if you're a corporation or um, a, a good nonprofit and good community member if you're a uh, not-for-profit organization. So going into my PhD, I realized there's a few gaps. Um, there was at the time, and there still is a growing body of literature on sustainability uh, in sport. So that's the climate action side. And I like to, you know, when I think about how sport ecology plays out, um, really there's kind of two directions of that relationship that I just illustrated on the last slide. And that has two goals, right? So for the sport impacts the natural environment side, we're talking about a goal of reducing that impact. Um, and so that looks like sustainable sport or what we are trying to get to with sustainable sport. And there's plenty of evidence um, as well on what climate hazards we may face. And that's, you know, all of the ecologists and atmospheric scientists and oceanographers who've worked tirelessly over decades to come up with models for what our weather is, what we may expect it will be, um, and what we should be ready for. And that's not necessarily a point that sport uh, sports scholars are equipped to address. Um, although we're working on it, that's more something that's going to come out of the pure sciences, and then we can translate that um, to be usable information. And the third point, which I'm really interested in, is okay, well, we know what the hazards are going to be. We know we're going to have, for example, with climate change, shorter winters. We know to expect that there will likely be more natural disasters and so on. Um, what do we do about it, right? And that's that's the question that really gets me going and, and gets me excited about research is how do we respond? So going into my PhD, I learned that um, I knew really nothing about the questions I was interested in studying. Um, I had a really good, uh, thanks to Tom and Nigel and others at Brighton I had a really good eye for being critical in the sports sector and events, um, but I had no background in environmental policy, really, in the science of climate change. I'd never taken a science course at university. Um, and so I took doctoral seminars in natural resource science and management um, and did a master's in that program. So essentially, I did the whole doctoral program right up to the defense. Um, and instead of doing a PhD dissertation in defense, I did a master's thesis. Uh, and that was great because it really opened my eyes to the kinds of information that we don't often tap into that might be really useful. Um, and this is where some of that uh, interdisciplinary work comes in, is I met some really cool people who've influenced my work in, in some pretty significant ways. And then I looked around at the sport management discipline, um, going to ESM and the North American Association for Sport Management Conference and a number of others and started noticing that Researchers really do work in silos. Um, if you're an academic, you've heard this a thousand times, but we do. And I don't know that it's the best thing, especially when we're talking about some of these bigger uh, global challenges. 
And in sport management, especially at the time, there was a, a lack of outside theory. And what I mean by that is the theory that was being used in sustainability studies was really coming from management um, and sport management. It, there was very little consultation of sociology theories, of anthropology, of um, environmental policy, for that matter, all these different aspects that should play into this and should um, factor in. And the result of that was there was limited interaction um, and so limited sharing of ideas. Um, and so an example of that would be, you know, there are people in sport management field who are studying, you know, how do we get fans to get on board with sustainability? Uh, meanwhile, there's people in environmental communication. So that's in the journalism and communication field who are studying how do we communicate about climate change? Meanwhile, there's people over in sociology studying, you know, what are people's environmental orientations and how does that impact their livelihoods and what they're going to attach themselves to like these three things can and should go together and currently don't. Um, so that was another piece that I thought is interesting about where the sport discipline was at at the time. Uh, and, and these are all improving, but still very much, that's still very much the case. Uh, and then again, limited awareness of the scope of environmental issues, right? So at the top of this, I rattled off a bunch of different ways that climate change and the environment are impacting sport. And yet, to this day, there are 23 studies that explore that total, and that's across all different disciplines. Um, we have a paper coming out on that soon. So there's really not very much happening in this space yet, and uh, it's a big opportunity in terms of just exploring, really from any angle, how people are responding to it, how the environment is responding to us, um, and how we can improve that relationship. So I brought together a team of people I thought, well, um, you know, if I'm not going to solve this on my own. I was really curious about it. The other problem was that the people at Minnesota were great about letting me just go and learn about this on my own, but they were not environmentally oriented people. And so I went and found environmentally oriented researchers um, across North America and their pictures are here and asked them to be part of like a research group. So essentially it, it started as a bit of a lab and we put together a number of studies really quickly um, getting a feel for where, where the discipline was, was at with regards to understanding the environment. Um, and so the mission that came of that was to produce high quality research. That was kind of our bread and butter. It's where we started uh, catalyzing industry academy knowledge exchange. So how do we help sport managers who were never trained to do sustainability work, to do sustainability work um, and to take it seriously? Uh, how to raise public awareness of sport ecology related topics. Um, there's a at the moment, there's a big uh, push among the UN Sport for Climate Action Framework, which is a project of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to use sport as a vehicle for educating the public on climate change by basically showing them like, here's how climate change is impacting sport and having them care about it because it's impacting their, their fun stuff, right? Um, and so uh, this... This is a project that we've really taken on is how do we build that public awareness and then creating opportunities for students to learn. Um, and again, the teaching part, we put it last because it's it's the groundwork. If we don't get it right in our classrooms um, and get it right in terms of our messaging, it's never going to work on any of the other levels. So research and teaching and then industry academy, um, knowledge exchange and, and public education are our four pillars. And each one of us, we have different leads on each of the pillars, and we've worked in these for the last couple of years. So I'll start with the last one, teaching. Um, we not only have developed, uh, we've developed six different levels of sport ecology coursework. Um, so a 
younger undergrad level course. So a first year course, a fourth year course, a master's level course, a doctoral seminar. We've also developed a set of modules that fit into your sport event or sport marketing course so that professors can just pick them up and put them right into a classroom. Um, and then we've developed an, uh, an, a field fieldwork course, essentially. And for our fieldwork courses, we've partnered with a number of different organizations. So we've sent 200 students to Super Bowl um, to work as sustainability ambassadors. So they go out and talk to the fans in the stands. They talk to people at the different uh, event sites. They participate in cleaning up these sites and making sure that they are kept in good shape. Um, and then and they serve as just uh, a face uh, for the, the greening campaign. And so that often looks like having a conversation with people about why their Coca-Cola bottle is recyclable and they should take the extra two steps to go from the garbage to the recycling and put it in the right place. Um, in the top left, you can see a campaign that took place in uh, Tampa Bay in 2019 for the final four. We took students there um, to be part of, again, a big uh, waste management campaign. So Tampa Bay was rolling out a whole new compost and recycling plan, and we wanted to educate people about it through the event. Uh, so that was a really interesting project that the students took up all semester and then went and got to activate it. Um, and in the bottom left, this is MLB, so Major League Baseball All-Star Game. We take students every year. We've done that for um, we actually took it over. One of our members had done it for six years and we took it over uh, since 2019. Um, obviously, 2020 didn't happen, but we'll see what happens in future. Um, one of the things that I think it's it's really impressive to see is the, the pillars that you have um, for sport ecology. Uh, and you mentioned your passion for college athletes. Uh, and I know in your education pillar, uh, you work all the way from the undergrad level, all the way up through the master's level, and even have some PhD courses now as well. Uh, and the resources for that um, are all on the Sport Ecology website, and we'll have links to the show notes as well for that. Um, so if you want to, and please, please do check it out. It's great, great resources. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any, if you're thinking of, of expanding beyond the undergrad level and looking at engaging, um, say, elementary school or even secondary school students, uh, and then creating that thread from those younger ages into these undergrad programs in sport ecology and beyond. It's funny you should ask. Um, so, so yeah, I think at some point, as professors, our bread and butter is really that um, university cohort. So that is where our expertise is. Now, that's not to say that we're not interested in the younger kids um, as a like seven year camp counselor, I definitely am. And so, um, so that's definitely one of the directions we're heading in. And, and there's a few organizations that I'll call out just off the top of my head that are really doing that work well. And so if you are working with children and interested in um, engaging them in these topics, uh, beyond sport has a sport and STEM Alliance, um, that I would encourage you to check out. It's really targeted towards those middle year elementary school and then into high school, um, engaging students in conversations about things like climate change and SDGs um, in gym class, which is great. So uh, so I think that's really cool. And, and those are the kinds of initiatives we're going to be picking up uh, and, and helping and supporting moving forward. I don't know that we're going to be playing a lead role in that because again, it's just not our area of expertise, but um, we are, we have been in touch with a couple of education departments um, in a couple of states who are interested in picking this up and trying to figure out what do we do with it. And uh, I, I really do think like teachers change the world. So if, 
if we can put resources into their hands and have them doing it in class, it's a huge win for everybody involved, right? And honestly, yeah, so much um, more fun in gym class to do that than we beat tests. We've a number so, of different parties to get the word yeah, out about so the different data that exists that happen, and the different kinds of win. questions that can um, be asked. Um, and so... NHL Green has a project, for example. So all the big, I'll start with this, all of the big leagues, um, including in Europe and in the UK, have greening projects internally. Uh, They are all very rudimentary. So they're all really low-hanging fruit projects. And for the most part, it revolves around uh, LED lights and recycling. And so we've worked with a couple of those organizations on the back end to talk about and have an interesting conversation about what would that medium hanging fruit look like. So for NHL Green, um, it's, you know, you have cooling agents in the ice. Uh, Some of those cooling agents are pretty toxic. Let's think about what alternatives may exist. And then um, let's also look at, you know, is there an option to not have a Zamboni run every hour between every session? Can it run every other hour or, you know, twice a day, um, which means the ice conditions won't be as good, but we also won't be dropping 200 liters of water on the ground every hour. So that kind of project, we also show up to a number of um, meetings and conversations. So uh, the um, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Rwanda, which ended up taking place online, uh, had a meeting for the ministers of sport, which we went and attended. And um, we were part of a conversation on, you know, what does actual meaningful Uh, sustainability look like um, in the context of national sport systems. We attend uh, a number of projects like the Sport Environment Alliance Conference and the Green Sports Alliance Conference. Um, And then a couple of us have joined the Protect Our Winter Science Alliance. And we talk to the media. This is how we get most of our public education done. So we have a podcast that has three seasons uh, in the books. And um, Tom was actually a guest on the podcast last season. Uh, which came out just before Christmas, but we, um, we've also started working with major outlets. And so um, I've worked with uh, ESPN and I'm a contributor now for the BBC. They have just made a commitment to cover climate issues in sport um, ahead of COP26, which is being hosted in Scotland at the end of the year. And so uh, that's been a really interesting project, just having conversations with their reporters, with their researchers about, you know, here's how to speak about these problems. Here's how to um, not make it sound like doom and gloom, because that's something that really uh, turns me off personally. And there has to be a little bit of what to do about it uh, in in the uh, in the coverage. And, um, and then we've also worked with, so David Grudo at Sky Sports and some of the team at TSN um, have started getting in touch as well, curious about, you know, how do we cover this? And so we're working with journalists to, to help them understand the problem. Um, again, you know, I said it earlier about managers, but sport journalists were never taught how to cover climate change. So this is a brand new one for them. Uh, and much like there were trainings for how to cover concussion issues and health issues, um, this is one that's coming up uh, in that space as well. We've published a lot in the first couple of years. So I think we're at 32 publications by our team um, in the first two years. And the beauty of this is that often we do it with other people in the team. So um, of the 32, there are 26 that were published by like that had more than two sport ecology people on the authorship team. So that's been a lot of fun. And really it spans the gamut of sport impacting the environment and also the environment impacting sport. So we're trying to build a bit of a base on what this actually looks like. And we have a number of graduate students that work with us on that. 
So I'll start with the, or I'll continue with the fancy official definition of what sport ecology is. Um, sport ecology is the study of sport, the natural environment, and the bi-directional relationship between the two. And so I presented that bi-directional relationship off the top. We chose the word sport ecology, and this is a question we get a lot, so I'll jump ahead of it. We chose the word sport ecology because um, originally people were speaking about and writing about uh, this topic in the terminology of sports sustainability. And it's a flawed term for a number of reasons. Um, one, sustainability is a principle. It's not a science, uh, although it's becoming one, which is great, but it's not a science, it's a principle. Um, two, sustainability invokes cultural sustainability, social sustainability, economic sustainability, and environmental sustainability, um, among others. And so in many ways, it, it gets diluted. We lose the point on the environment. Um, and sport ecology, actually, when we started talking about it, we spoke with a number of, um, of human ecology specialists. So they told us the story of how human ecology got started, which was um, back in the 1930s, there were a number of sociologists and ecologists who got together and realized these things go together. Um, you know, people don't just impact and interact with and engage with people. They also interact with and engage with uh, their natural environment. And so um, the roots of ecology are, the word ecology means an, organi an organism and their environment. So the study of an organism in their environment and then human ecology made it about humans. And then since then, there's been the development of tourism ecology, business ecology, and now sport ecology. Uh, and so we worked with a number of people in that discipline and in the tradition of human ecology to develop what this might look like. Um, and we're still in the process really of fleshing it all out, but it's an exciting theoretical and, and brain exercise to go through. So again, um, this is the bi-directional relationship. My research really focuses on the first one. Um, sport is impacted by the natural environment, although almost everything I talk about in the media um, and with partners is about the second, the latter one. My research agenda for the last couple of years, so finally getting into just what I work on, um, really has two branches. I'm gonna mostly focus on the first one because we, in the interest of time. Um, so climate vulnerability and adaptation in the sports sector is kind of the overarching title. And there's three big questions that I ask. The first, uh, what climate risks are sport organizations and sports people facing um, right now and in future? Second, how able and willing are they to adapt? And third, what would adaptation actually look like? Um, so what is what adaptation exists, um, what might be possible and so on. So I'll start with, I think it's really important whenever we talk about climate change and adaptation and vulnerability that we start with definition of vulnerability. Um, I use the um, United Nations International Strategy for Disaster Reduction Framework, which is the bottom here. Uh, vulnerability has been defined in a number of different ways, depending on what um, discipline you're in. So if you're talking to Brene Brown, she's going to have a very different version of vulnerability than I will. They're very similar in the sense that they explain um, a degree of weakness or exposure to an external threat and then response to that. But they differ in the sense that the topic differs and then um, the degree to which the focuses on exposure and sensitivity versus adaptive capacity is different as well. So Brene Brown would focus more on adaptive capacity and I'm focused more on the whole entire equation that you see at the bottom. So 
our version of vulnerability borrowed from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment is the degree to which a system is susceptible to and unable to cope with adverse effects of climate change, including climate variability and extremes. Um, this is an important definition because there is some climate change that doesn't actually look like quote unquote climate change. So climate variability, um, having that in there indicates that, you know, those those unusual seasons, even though it's not an extreme um, or a natural disaster or something like the you know winter that only comes in January, those little kind of changes that happen over time get included in this framework. And so Vulnerability is a measure of exposure and sensitivity. So exposure is how likely is X to happen and sensitivity answers the question, how bad would it be if that happened? Minus adaptive capacity. And the cool thing about this equation is that it actually offers a lot of hope in the sense that adaptive capacity really can completely offset the risk. So it is possible to um, be so responsive to climate change that it will be unlikely to really poorly or negatively impact your organization or your you as a person. The first um, piece that I wrote uh, as part of my thesis, as part one of my thesis, was um, the climate vulnerability of sports organizations framework. And in my head, the way it worked, and it still, I guess still works, is that um, you have the potential impacts on one axis. So this is how climate change is going to impact you as an individual or your organization. Um, so that can be low in the sense uh, that you may be in a place that is not experiencing climate change quite as rapidly. So um, a place actually like my hometown of Toronto uh, is not experiencing climate change as fast and as rapid as somewhere like the Arctic or um, anywhere really near the equator that are getting hit way harder. And then, or on the flip side, high potential impact. So this is essentially all of California um, and Australia with wildfires. It's the entire Southeast of California. Uh, North America and the, I guess, the entire Southeast of Asia with um, tropical cyclones, which either get called typhoons if you're in Asia or hurricanes uh, in North America. So there's a number of different things that may be factored into your potential impact, um, but depending on where you fall on this axis, uh, will determine just what, what you're exposed to, how likely it is to happen. And then you can have low adaptive capacity um, or high adaptive capacity. And, and so that will um, put you on the other axis. And when you figure out where you are, so if you're facing some pretty serious threats, but also you're really well built up and you have you know, the best air handlers or a facility that can withstand a storm, or you've moved your facility out of a flood zone or whatever it is that you're facing, if you're prepared for that, you become um, a fortified organization. You're in the fortified state. If, you know, worst case scenario, you're facing those same high impacts and you're not ready for it, you end up in a problem state. Um, and so this is supposed to be a prescriptive tool and we've developed a number of indices and metrics for organizations to self-assess um, self and place themselves here just to understand how bad is this and, and you know how serious is it that we get, um, get involved in some, some more uh, adaptation immediately. So to understand potential impacts, like I said, we're starting to develop some of those metrics, um, but there are a number of free resources, and I always point to these um, in terms of what you might be facing. And again, this is usually not, uh, these are not resources that are coming out of the sports sector. These are resources coming out of government agencies. And so in the UK, it's the Met Office. In the US, it's NASA or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. In Canada, there's the Climate Atlas. Um, but on these websites, typically you can go punch in where you live and it will tell you 
you know, your, your location is most susceptible to flooding because of sea level rise, or your location may be more susceptible to extreme heat episodes. Uh, and that can give you a pretty good idea of where to start. It's not perfect, but it will give you a good idea. Um, so on the risk side, uh, we've started collating some of that information. And so right now we're working on a project, a funded project, um, predicting climate, climatological impacts on the Olympic Games and the FIFA World Cups. This is myself and Walker Ross, a colleague of mine. Uh, and so we've collected qualitative data from global flooding maps, historical weather, um, air quality data, and essentially we're looking for red flags. So in the last 10 years, for example, um, Beijing has had on average eight days of uh, what they would call hazardous quality air um, in the month of February. And so we're flagging that. We're looking at what in, um, what the city is doing in response to manage the poor air quality in the month that is due to host the Olympics. And then we're also then uh, comparing that to weather data and um flood maps and, and a bunch of different inf pieces of information to try to figure out, you know, what the best move may be in terms of protecting people in those circumstances. And, and so we're doing that for every Olympic Games and FIFA World Cup location um, through the 2020s. And so that will be, uh, it's actually going to be on the BBC the 4th of February, they're covering that um, in the six o'clock news. And then it'll also be happening, uh, coming out published, I think in April. On the adaptation side, um, one of the big projects I've been working on is finding indicators for climate capacity. So again, that's that self-assessment tool. So if I'm a sport manager, um, I can pull up the tool online, click through it. Uh, you know, here's my location. Here's the risks that I'm most concerned about. And then click through this list of indicators um, that will tell me how prepared I am for climate change or not. Um, and so this tool was developed through um, mostly qualitative data. Um, so the first step was a Delphi study that was done with um, academics. Then we moved into a Delphi study with practitioners. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar, a Delphi study is a consensus seeking study. Um, and so we present a number of different options to people and say, look, rank these uh, most important to least important. And also, you know, how relevant are they? So we'll ask them a bunch of different questions about an instrument. And then based on the feedback, we whittle down the instrument. And so we do this over several rounds of consultation with the same panel. So we did it with academics. Now we're working on it with practitioners um, based all around North America, Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Um, we also did a number of interviews with sport managers who oversaw successful adaptation efforts. And so this was, for example, and here's a picture on the left, um, we, we had special permission in our ethics to share this case uh, because I got so many questions about it. So I had to go back and have them sign ethics agreements. Um, but so Sacramento Kings, which is an NBA team, um, experienced some pretty severe issues with uh, wildfires during the major campfire event in California in 2018. And the Golden One Center, which is their facility, had just been built, but they did not have the best air handlers, which is essentially your filtration system and your um, the fan system that pulls air out. And so they went through a whole process whereby they actually had to cancel two games in a row. And then they had, um, they, you know, drove all the way down to Los Angeles, just six hours or so, picked up these really fancy air handlers that cost them almost a million dollars to rent for the week, brought them back, uh, tried to install them. It sort of worked, not quite. And then they had to go through a whole redesign of their internal filtration system to make sure that the building can now handle wildfire events. Um, so we 
went through a number of different cases like that, uh, a whole lot that had to do actually with um, winter. So different winter resorts that are adapting their offerings in terms of the product. So they'll have skiing in the winter, but also fat bike tires um, and hiking and all these different options for the summer because they know that their winter offerings are not going to be as good. Uh, so that's the next big project. Um, and we found some interesting early findings. So when that self-assessment tool comes out, you'll see, um, if you were to read it, you don't have to, I can just give you the Coles notes now, um, that there's six categories of resources that play into whether or not an organization is going to be ready for climate change. The big one is financial resources. Obviously, do you have money to get out of this? Um, but within financial resources, um, insurance factors in really huge here. So if you have an insurance plan that will accommodate climate change, you're in good shape. If you don't, uh, it might be time to go talk to your insurer, insurance provider and, and figure out what, what it might cost to add that to the policy. In terms of human resources, it's really about what do your staff know and what are they prepared for um, and or do you need external support? So a consultant to come in and, and support the work that's being done to adapt. In terms of planning and development resources, that looks like policies and procedures for emergency response. Um, it also looks like policies related to, you know, heat or um, wind. And so a really an example I like to use in this category is um, most sports organizations that work on turf or field. Uh, so that's your rugby, your cricket, um, baseball, football, etc. They have a lightning policy for stopping the game when there's lightning. This is a health protocol, very straightforward. Um, in the same way that we have lightning policies, I often suggest to organizations that are summer sports that they should have a heat policy. So if the temperature gets above 30 degrees Celsius, we need to include more heat breaks, for example. Um, and these are really simple, very straightforward things that can come in to play qu pretty quickly. And then network resources is just who do you have access to? Are there grants available? Uh, do you have sponsors that will stick with you if you have to cancel games or, or cancel a season? Infrastructural resources is your physical building, your equipment, and then natural resources, um, which is just what are you working with in terms of natural solutions? Do you, uh, you know, do you have natural shade on your site that you can take advantage of? Um, that kind of that kind of thing. And then last. Um, I have some current projects on adaptation with regards to individuals. And so I'm working, for example, with a company that does wearables. Uh, so on the left, you can see this mask. Um, that mask is actually not a mask. It's a respirator, which means that it both protects the user from particles in the air around them and also protects everybody around them from their own um, particles. And so it would be appropriate for someone to use, for example, as a mask during COVID. Um, but similarly, uh, it works in places with heavy smog, um, wildfire, it can uh, drop the air quality for the actual user down two to three points on the scale, which essentially means that you can get into yourself into the worst air quality conditions and still be breathing relatively clean air with that respirator on. Um, they also do cooling towels and other pieces. So that's been a really interesting, this has been an interesting piece for me is just what, what can individuals do um, on their own that are not crazy expensive or involve moving somewhere else. So the key takeaways, I guess, for me that I would hope you walk away with is that this is totally brand new. And for the most part, um, we're still figuring out what this means, or I am at least. Uh, climate change will absolutely impact sports. Um, and I'm always happy to debate that point with anybody. The impacts will differ based on location, the type of sport, the type of facilities, and the type of year. Um, but adaptation is absolutely possible. And, and this is where um, most of the work I think has to take place is that the worst climate impacts are avoidable and we need to avoid them. So for example, there is 
you know, heat related illness is 100% avoidable outcome. There's no reason an athlete should uh, be fainting on a court. There are several thresholds before we hit heat related illness um, that that can be used to develop policy uh, to make sure that that's not happening. And last, I like to stir the pot a little bit. Um, so I offer this, the sports sector is not sustainable as it currently stands. Uh, and, you know, sustainability in this case, based on the um, classic definition of using resources to the point where we are meeting the needs, not the wants, but the needs of people today without compromising the potential for future generations to meet their own needs. And again, needs, not wants. So um, I'll leave you with that thought. And thank you. I guess maybe, could you say what you and the sport ecology group are looking at doing in the near future and, and maybe in a couple of years time? Sure. Um, so near future. Um, so we're about to enter like a really weird uh, twofer with Olympic games this year. And then we're about to enter a year with the Birmingham summer games for Commonwealth and um Qatar World Cup. So in all of these cases, the climate will be a problem. And um, and I'm I'm expecting that this is only going to grab more attention moving forward. I mean, just this week, there were two stories in the BBC about it. Um, and this is something that's gat gathering steam internationally. So right now, we're leaning really heavily on our public education pillars. So you mentioned our pillars, the so research, teaching, um, public scholarship or public education and industry liaison. And, and we've been active in obviously research and teaching because it's our jobs. Um, but we are we are really quickly expanding the other two. And that's kind of the focus right now is how do we work with media broadcasters to make sure that they feel equipped and comfortable to have these conversations and it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere. So um, David Garrido at Sky Sports is one that we've been in touch with, talking to him through, you know, here's what your plans are and then here's how to accurately depict what's going on um, and what would be helpful for people to do and what is just not helpful at all, uh, because that's another one that gets lost. And, um, you know, we have our podcast, it's had three seasons. We're looking at a fourth this year. It's going to be a little different. Uh, so that'll be interesting. I don't, and like fun kind of preview. I'm probably not the only host anymore, which is awesome. So exciting um, for you. <laughs> yeah, exciting for me. Uh, so, so there's some cool stuff happening there. Um, the other big one is we have a grad student mentorship initiative. So we have 17 students from across Europe and North America who uh, meet with our team once a month. And we just brainstorm for two hours, chat about research, talk about what people are doing. And I, that is, we have so many applications coming into that, that it's going to uh, grow and change, I think quite a bit in the next year, in the sense that there will probably become a master's level cohort and a doctoral level cohort. Um, we're also looking to potentially have a sport ecology summit because it's getting big enough to warrant that, which is blows my mind because <laughs> we made news. up the word two years ago, but, um, <laughs> um, but you know, progress. So, so, uh, so yeah, so really it's going to be that public education, public scholarship piece that, um, is our, our main priority and focus. And, uh, and then we'll continue to do the research on the back end like we always do. Fantastic. Well, that's really encouraging to hear. And, uh, 
Yeah, to all our listeners, we'll have all, all the links to the Sport Ecology group and definitely go check them out. Listen to the podcast, uh, read all of their stuff. It's it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Transforming Sport. Special thanks this week to my guest, Dr. Madeline Orr. Maddie is Assistant Professor of Sport Management at SUNY College Cortland, Director and Co-Founder of the Sport Ecology Group. You can find more information about her research and the critical work being done by the Sport Ecology Group through the links in the description of this episode. This podcast is run by the Sport and Leisure Cultures Research Group at the University of Brighton and produced at the university's Eastbourne campus. You can tweet at me at Sean Mr. Heath and the show at our new Twitter address at Sport Transform. If you have episode ideas or want to collaborate on a project, please send us a message. You can find more information about the research group, past episodes, and links to further information at our podcast home at anchor.fm slash transforming sport.